Well, here we are in Paul's letter to the Roman believers. Again, likely a collection of congregations in uh, this, the largest city of the ancient world. And we're actually uh, bringing this letter to a conclusion this morning. We'll be looking this morning at Romans chapter 16 from verse 17 all the way uh, to the very uh, end. Now, I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, If you feel as though you've missed these uh, Romans sermons, you know uh, this is the 45th, so there have been a few. I think uh, most all of them are on our church website, but I know that two of them aren't because two of these sermons actually weren't preached. Uh, These were sermons that, well, not preached by me. These were sermons that I wrote, and then we distributed them electronically. Uh, So uh, some of you here actually preached uh, those two sermons uh, to folks in your home. What a strange uh, season uh, it's been. But here we are, 45th sermon in Romans. Here at Covenant, we love expositional preaching, and we love to spend time going through a single book, verse by verse. We take breaks. We did with Romans, but we like to make our way through the whole book. And the next book of the Bible that we'll be spending time in will be Mark's Gospel. And this sermon series will begin next Sunday. Romans has 16 chapters. Mark has 16 chapters as well. Uh, But I think there'll be slightly fewer sermons in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is a lot of narrative. There's a lot of uh, stories in Mark's gospel. And so oftentimes you can take larger sections of Scripture uh, to spend time on uh, simply because, well, it's a narrative. But as you look at this passage this morning, uh, Romans chapter 16 from verse 17 on, this passage as you hear it, as you read it, is going to seem a little bit disconnected. You'll actually hear about three different divisions in this passage, but you're only going to get one sermon. And I have to explain why I'm doing it that way, but I want you to remember the theme of this letter. The theme of all 16 chapters of Romans comes from chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul says that this uh, gospel uh, reveals the way one becomes righteous before God, and that way is faith alone. That's the theme of Romans. So don't worry about hearing three uh, different uh, vignettes or scenes in this passage, but I I want you to notice that, and then I'll explain how we'll tie them together when I introduce the sermon itself. The passage is from Romans 16, beginning at verse 17. Uh, Please pause with me and pray before we look at this text. Uh, Father, thank you for making yourself known to us We are dull of heart, hard of hearing. We grapple with indwelling sin and are easily distracted, but here you are speaking to us, making yourself known. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Romans chapter 16, beginning at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Well, as I said, the passage feels like three different scenes or vignettes kind of strapped together, doesn't it? I want to acknowledge this, but I want to share what I think the connection is between all three of these scenes. And to do that, I want you to imagine that these three scenes are three gardens that are a part of a vast property, three separate gardens. Uh, perhaps we might call the first one a rose garden, and the second one an herb garden, and the third one a botanic garden, a garden that shows off a collection of plants from around the world. And the gardens are rather different, but that there's, there's a single path that actually runs through each of the gardens, and in fact connects all of these gardens, ties them together. And that single path, I believe, is captured in the theme here again, the theme from Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, here uh, reference to the uh, old covenant, the Hebrew people, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We could say the righteousness of God is revealed uh, faith through and through. And it's revealed as it is written. This is a quote from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's the power of the gospel. God's power shown in the power to not, not only convert through faith, but to actually strengthen his people through faith. And indeed, it's that strengthening aspect of the gospel I think Paul's focusing on. But in verses 17 through 20, we could call this the first garden. It's a picture about life together. But life together, according to this passage, can sometimes go astray. Even life in the church 
In verse 17, look what Paul says. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. There's a counterfeit gospel of some sort, something opposed to the gospel, and it needs to be noticed. You see, this first garden is a rose garden. It's beautiful, but it's prickly. Verses 17 through 20. And the second garden, verses 21 through 24, is a garden of, I think, a more mature kind. It's a a garden in which there are mature members of the community, eight names listed together, and all these eight are looking at one another, greeting one another, but they're looking outward and they're greeting others, those whom they've not met. This is a picture of Paul's current church family. The gospel, it radiates from them. And this is the herb garden, a garden that's full of uh, medicinal and even culinary value. And there's a third garden in verses 25 through 27. Your Bibles will call this a doxology, but stick with me. This perhaps is the most glorious uh, garden of all. Uh, Here there is a lengthy praise to God. He's full of power. He's able. And he is full of wisdom. He knows what he's doing His power and his wisdom are revealed in his gospel, which not only strengthens the church, but goes out into the nations to draw in others. And this is the botanic garden, a garden that shows off God's diverse and uh, wonderfully robust collection of plants gathered from around the world. And so then these three gardens picture to us the work of the gospel. In the first garden, the gospel is under threat but victory is assured. And in the second garden, the gospel is thriving in community and directed outward towards others. And in the third garden, the gospel is maturity itself. Not only is the Christian walk empowered, but so too is the preaching of the gospel going out into the world. The gospel is the power of God to guide us in community so that we mature as Christian people and share his salvation with the entire world. That's what these three vignettes teach us. Let me explain this by looking at this first garden, verses 17 through 20. Uh, This is the gospel of the rose garden. And without looking too carefully at all, you see right there in verse 17 that there is a possibility for problems to arise in the life of the church. Oh my, how this seems like a poor place for Paul to finish this uh, great letter to Roman Christians. And there's a problem that can grow up in the church, and the problem has to do with actions that Paul says create division in the life of the community. It seems as though that there is a certain body of people that can create obstacles or hindrances before uh, another body of people, and all of this right within the church family. In this very last garden, I want you to uh, uh, think about this. The last garden is going to be about the strengthening of believers, strengthening that comes by God's great grace in the gospel. But here, there's a reason for that strengthening. Why do they need that strengthening? Because they may be deceived. The reality is that there's a real danger in the life of the church. The church, it turns out, according to Paul, is not perfect. And our community together is not perfect. And so in verses 17 through 20, uh, we have uh, a reason for why not only the church needs to be just converted by the gospel, but to be actually strengthened by the gospel. 
I want to break this up by addressing just two matters. First is this. Don't you see that there is a competing message in the life of the church? Paul calls it a message that is contrary to the doctrine you have been taught, contrary to the instruction that you have received, contrary to what Paul has been explaining to them in these first 15 chapters. Paul warns about a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you in Galatians chapter 1. And he also warns about a gospel contrary to the one you received, also in Galatians 1. He calls this gospel, again in Galatians, a different gospel. But there it is, right there in the life of the church. There is the gospel that Paul has preached. And there's a contrary gospel rearing up its head, pushing against that gospel that was preached by Paul. I want you to just think about this competing message in the church, and I want you to wonder who it is that might preach this competing message. You know, we might think that the ones who are preaching this contrary gospel are outsiders. They're people who don't ordinarily belong to the church, and they've infiltrated our church family, and they're preaching a gospel contrary to the true gospel. It could be. It could be that they're outsiders. Or it could be people who've been a part of our church family, but they're not yet members. They haven't uh, gone through our uh, year-long membership class. They haven't been properly vetted before they're then received. And those are the ones we ought to suspect anyhow. And sure enough, those are the ones that are preaching a contrary gospel. But from the tone of this text... I think it's more challenging if we consider that those who are preaching this contrary gospel are actually normal members in the life of the church. They're brothers and sisters who are sitting next to us, a part of the life of the church. But for some reason, and perhaps it's only a season of their life, we hope that it's just a season of their life. Or perhaps it's a function of immaturity in a Christian walk. But for some reason, they're subject to a kind of influence in which consciously or subconsciously they begin to set aside the gospel and they begin to set aside service to God and they begin to serve instead their appetites. Paul has used this expression before, the service of appetites, literally the service of our own uh, bellies. And when he uses this reference in Philippians chapter 3, he's referring to uh, the kind of service that is a service to uh, uh, legal requirements, uh, the requirements of what to eat, what not to eat, the requirements of Jewish dietary laws. The false gospel, it would seem, has something to do with enforcing legal requirements upon brothers and sisters in the life of the church as if those legal requirements are that which gains us favor before God. And we can uh, look back to Romans chapter 14. Uh, This was the issue on Paul's mind, and I suspect it's the issue that's on his mind here in Romans chapter 16. He says in Romans 14 verse 13, Let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance, an obstacle, in the way of a brother. Looking at the context of Romans 14, this is about placing some kind of an injunction or command on a brother or sister that is not explicitly taught in Scripture. These individuals insist that a brother or sister eat meat. Scripture doesn't make that insistence. 
or they insist that a brother and sister uh, be prohibited from ever meeting meat, and Scripture doesn't prohibit them from eating meat. The truth of the matter is that some things in Scripture are not explicitly prescribed, and some things in Scripture are not explicitly forbidden. And so our gospel becomes a contrary gospel when it tells someone that their intimacy with God is contingent upon meeting some legal requirement. What does the theme of the whole letter tell us? That we're saved through faith alone. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. And so when we tell a brother or sister that God will love them more if they do something, we're preaching a contrary gospel. Now, I want you to tell you what I think about this passage. If you look at the cues in the Greek itself, the passage actually is rather eloquent, and it rolls rather smoothly off of the pen of Tertius and the lips of Paul. I don't think that what Paul is talking about here is a massive stress fracture in the life of the congregation in Rome. You know how a plate breaks. You ever dropped a plate? And when you drop a plate and it hits the ground, it just immediately shatters. It just breaks all over the place. That's how a plate breaks, but that's not how a spoon breaks or a fork breaks. When you drop a piece of uh, silverware, it just bounces across the floor, doesn't it? The, the plate, it just shatters, but the, but the spoon or the fork, it needs to be bent back and forth, back and forth, and then I guess, I guess you could get it to break. But Paul isn't talking about some massive cataclysmic failure in the life of the church at Rome. He's talking about a small stress in the life of the church that can subtly begin to bend and warp our community together. And this can happen to the best of us. We can find ourselves not only adopting the obstacles of others as a condition for being a recipient of God's love, but we can catch ourselves putting obstacles before our brothers and sisters, insisting uh, that they uh, leap over these obstacles in order to earn God's love. We begin to think that God loves me because I do fill in the blank. And then uh, we begin to tell others that uh, they too can be loved by God if they also, well, fill in the blank. Well, this is a counter message that disregards the freedom that we have in Christ and that instead insists upon some kind of rule that must be obeyed to be a member of his church. And all of this, it's very subtle, isn't it? Well, there's a competing message that can arise in the life of the church. But not only is there a competing message, but there is a correction for this competing message. Listen to Paul's correction. The, the correction isn't something as drastic as applying a church discipline. You know, Jesus teaches us to use church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Someone sins against us, and we uh, tell them with God's holy scripture that they've sinned against us and how they've done so, and we expect them to repent, and if they don't, we bring witnesses, and if they uh, continue to not repent, then we, uh, that we employ the leadership of the church, and there's an appropriate means for church member or church discipline to be practiced in the life of the church. But look what Paul says here. He doesn't give us steps of church discipline. He seems to be describing something that can uh, rather uh, happen in the life of the church and in fact does happen in the life of the church and needs to be curtailed. Look what he says in verse 17. 
He says to look out for people who teach this message, to suspect it. I wonder if he may mean to suspect it in ourselves as well. He tells them to uh, listen to how the gospel is expressed uh, and listen in such a way that penetrates smooth talk, slippery speech. He says, don't be easily impressed. And moreover, he says, don't get caught up in flattery. There's something about this contrary gospel that actually, actually flatters us. You know, of course, the true gospel doesn't flatter us. This true gospel says that we're sinners and there's nothing that we can do. We need God's grace. But the contrary gospel actually flatters us with uh, praises about how we live our life. And Paul says, watch for that. People might praise our life so that we begin to think that God loves us because, well, we're so lovable. Paul says, don't be deceived in verse 18. And he says again in verse 18, don't be naive. See, this is, this is really different, isn't it, from official church discipline. In verse 19, he says that we are to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I suspect this is a connection with Romans chapter 12. We go back to Romans chapter 12. Paul says that a Christian is someone who is transformed by the renewal of their minds. And this is something that happens progressively. Slowly they are renewed so that by testing they may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christians grow in their ability to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. This is just a part of our growth, and it happens slowly. And it happens in the life of a community. And so part of the correction, according to Paul, is that we're to be on guard. But another part of the correction is to make your life a life of studying again and again the doctrine that you've already been taught. You don't Notice Paul doesn't say that you need some additional material here in order to stand up against this contrary gospel. You're going to need a doctorate degree. You're going to need seminary education. They don't. And you don't, and I don't. We need, however, to become students of the saving and sustaining power of the gospel, to reflect upon that gospel, to see that gospel taught from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout Scripture, and to know what God preaches to us in the covenant of grace, what it takes to be righteous before Him, His very grace. The gospel tells you who you are, a sinner who has been saved by grace, but one who also needs that grace moment by moment as you battle indwelling sin. The gospel tells you who others are in the church as well, and they're just like you. They too are growing slowly, and regardless of where they are in their sanctification, uh, they too need God's saving grace momentous grace, powerful grace. They need that grace moment by moment. You know, here at Covenant Presbyterian, we understand the gospel of grace to be not only God's power to save, to convert, but also God's power to grow us and to mature us. You know, we actually need each other in order to grow. This is just God's will for us as a church. He's knit us together as a body so that we can remind one another 
of how loved we are by God. We can remind one another that this God, he has poured out his wrath on his only begotten son rather than on you. That he has saved you for all eternity. That he will never leave you. And at the same time, uh, we need one another that we might uh, help each other to live lives that show that we are in this process of being renewed uh, by the power of the gospel, that we are growing in our ability to discern what is pleasing and acceptable before God, that none of us are perfect. You need to know that I don't believe any of you are perfect, and you need to know that none of those sitting around you and the man and the pulpit before you, neither are they perfect either which means that all of us need to be patient with one another. And we need to know the difference between helping our brother and sister to please God with lives full of gratitude for the gospel and when they are actually putting obstacles or when we are putting obstacles before them to make them holy in our own eyes when they're already holy in God's eyes. We need to be able to discern that difference. You see, there's a gospel path that cuts right through the center of this thorny uh, rose garden. Success doesn't come from the church community becoming more and more peaceful. I hope, I pray, that Covenant Presbyterian Church grows in her peace and unity. We hope that this is the case. (laughs) But the real guarantee of that peace and unity, it doesn't come from us. It actually comes from God. We, we actually are the kind of people who receive a power that is brought to us from on high. The God who has the power to save, he also has the power to bring strong and lasting peace. Look what Paul says. Ultimate success rests with Jesus. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, verse 20. This has to be a quote of Genesis 3.15, which we looked at earlier in the service. God saying to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel in shorthand. Jesus wins. And we have peace and we have victory as a church because Jesus has victory. Notice how Paul says it here. It's it's not said this way anywhere else in Scripture. Satan is crushed under our feet. This has to be a reference to the church. Even though every church community is sinful and thorny, us included, we need to keep watch for those who are proclaiming a contrary gospel, and we need to be reminded ourselves of what the gospel of grace is, and we need to love as well as tolerate fellow believers when all of us are in the process of being renewed by that gospel. And even though all of this is true, the church wins. The gospel is the power of God to guide us in community so that we mature because Jesus crushes Satan on behalf of his church body. It's thorny, but there's victory. 
And the next garden, this very quickly, verses 21 through 24, this is the herb garden. This is the garden in which you go to uh, to receive medicine and flavor. This is a quick picture of a body of believers uh, relishing in that gospel victory in the church at Corinth. These are the people from where Paul is writing. Each of these are individuals who really have no reason for being together at all apart from the work of the gospel. They're very different individuals. And yet there's a gospel path that runs right through this garden because there's no reason for the eight to be together and to love one another apart from that gospel. Here in this list, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Uh, Roman citizens, Erastus is likely a Roman citizen and non-Roman citizens. There are people for whom Paul has a close relationship, Timothy, and then there are people for whom Paul has a rather distant relationship, Tertius may be one of these individuals who lives in Rome. A variety of ministry roles are captured here. Not all of these individuals uh, are in full-time vocational ministry, and we can presume that their ages are different, that their backgrounds are different, that their ethnicities are different. And not only that, all of these individuals have have connection to a church that no one would say is the most beautiful, God-fearing church in the ancient world. They're a part of the church in Corinth. What a troubled church that was. And yet here's the gospel path. Just as the names earlier in Romans chapter 16 were people in Rome who are, Paul uh, commands, greeting one another, this list of names are people who are not only greeting one another, but they're looking outward that they might greet others whom they've never met before. (laughs) I don't know if it adds very much, but you'll notice in this passage that there's no verse 24. Did you notice that? Are you paying attention? It wasn't just a test. There's no verse 24. Uh, 24, because uh, some of the most uh, trusted manuscripts uh, actually lack verse 24, and so many translators, uh, ESV and NIV, drop it. Uh, Verse 24 says in these manuscripts, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. And I wonder if what Paul is saying with these these list of names is he's encouraging this uh, thorny rose garden of the church at Rome. And he's saying, listen to all of these people. They greet one another by the power of the gospel, but they also greet you. And here is this great encouragement that comes from the work of the gospel. They love each other and they love the believers in Rome. They love you. Well, that's the second garden. And then finally in verse 25, here is the botanic garden. Here is the garden that contains the best specimens of the gardener's collection, specimens that come from all over the world. And this entire passage is one lengthy praise to God, but I want to challenge you to look at this verse and and break it up into its independent clauses. This is actually easier to do in the Greek than it is to do in the English. What is uh, this passage about? Well, if you look at the very beginning and at the very end in verse 27... You see that this is a praise to God for whom be all glory. In its very shortest form, with all of the clauses removed, this is a praise that says, to God, verse 25, be glory, verse 27. To God be glory. And I want you to just hear how as Paul takes us through these gardens, he has begun with our life in the church of Jesus Christ, but then he elevates us slowly out of that garden, and he says, yes, 
it's thorny. And yes, you are distant from these believers in Corinth who even still greet you. But to God be glory. What's being elevated here about God, verse 25, the power of God. He is able. And the Greek word there for able is where we get our word for a dynamite. Verse 25, what's being elevated? The power of God. There's one more. The wisdom of God in verse 27 is also being elevated. And really, if we boil this passage down, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God that Paul says is his glory. You know, I grew up in uh, a house with uh, pilots, and I actually have a lot of friends uh, who are pilots, and I've heard this uh, illustration uh, from pilots before. Uh, They'll describe someone as being all thrust and no vector, or all vector and no thrust. You ever heard that expression before? Is someone who has tons of energy, lots of thrust, but they have no direction with life, no vector. Tons of thrust, no vector. Or someone who has all kinds of vector, all kinds of plans and direction and uh, uh, objectives, but they have no thrust. Right? They don't do anything. Now, this may be just a, a pilot thing. I don't know how familiar that is, but I thought about that, uh, trying to boil down what exactly uh, Paul is holding forth about God. Hey, God has thrust and vector. He has power and he has wisdom. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing, but he has the power to bring that plan about. And Paul says this is his forevermore glory. This is his forevermore glory. He is able to save, and he's able to strengthen. And his great plan is your salvation, and it is secure. But also in his great plan is your sanctification in the life of the church, even though she certainly is thorny. And Paul goes on to say how God's glory is revealed. How is his power and his wisdom made known? And right at the center is Jesus as he's revealed by God himself. God makes known all of his power and all of his wisdom in Jesus Christ. And he did this in the old covenant through the prophetic writings. And he does this in the new covenant through the preaching of the gospel. Here's God's power and wisdom. Jesus Christ himself. And it's been made manifest. You can see and I can see. Yes, but what does this mean? You ever feel comfortable enough saying that to Scripture? Yes, I understand, and in fact, I've sung these words before, but what does it mean? Why should I care? Why does it matter? Well, the reference that Paul makes with regards to uh, obedience of faith, I think that's a reference to conversion, that God's uh, power and wisdom goes out in his gospel proclaimed so that individuals would uh, become uh, uh, saved, that they would um, enjoin God in the obedience of faith. And so often we think about the power of the gospel going out into the world and converting. And we should think that. That's what God's Word says to us. And we think about the gospel as a tool in the hands of missionaries going out into the world uh, so that individuals will be converted. And that's right and proper. I don't want to take that from us. But what next? And I believe all that. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you believe all that as well. What next? 
But look what, look what Paul is saying. He's not saying that the gospel goes out and simply converts. Look how he begins this wonderful praise. He begins by talking about an attribute of God that is not merely saving, but an attribute of God that is strengthening. And I want our church to be a church that talks often about the work of the gospel, not just in converting. We support missionaries. We send missionaries. We tell people the the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to encourage one another to do that in our neighborhoods, in our communities and our workplaces. Yes, indeed. But you realize that we are terribly weak at doing that if we are not preaching the gospel to one another as a church family. Reminding one another who we are in Christ Jesus. I need to hear that from you. I need to be reminded that I am loved unconditionally by God's great grace. I need to hear you tell me that, John, God loves you because he loves you. And you need to hear me say that same thing to you. That you are loved by God because he is a gracious, merciful God. That gospel, it converts. But Paul is saying here that this gospel actually strengthens us. And so this gospel, it goes through that garden when we are looking rather thorny as a church. We're having a difficult time discerning that which is explicitly commanded by God's word and that which isn't. And we just need to uh, overlook that and love one another, uh, even though our opinions are different. Maybe uh, during the pandemic, this is where the church is right now, uh, walking through her own thorniness. This is the church needing to hear the goodness of the gospel, that we're not loved because of anything that we have done. We're loved because of his great grace. Maybe that's where we are. But the gospel's there, and the gospel is also uh, amidst that church uh, that understands things about the gospel, uh, that pictures the gospel well, uh, that wears the gospel because she's such a diverse body of individuals, and she does a very good job of loving complete strangers, greeting them, hoping the best for them, praying for them, encouraging them with the same gospel that strengthens and encourages them. And it could be that we're just in these different gardens. That's kind of what the present age is like, bouncing back and forth. But there will come a day, there will come a day where there will be no sporadic application of the gospel. We'll be with God in the king's very garden. No thorn, no discernible path because everything is the gospel. And all of us will have a close, intimate connection with this great and glorious King through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Savior. Here and now, there's no perfection. But in the future, there is gospel glory. But let's not forget this, that even now, that gospel that converts, that gospel also strengthens. May we cling to this gospel as a congregation. Would you join me in prayer? Father, help us to love and enjoy the multifaceted beauty and strength and wisdom of your gospel. Would you forgive us for growing bored? Would you forgive us for attempting to move on? Thank you for strengthening us in the gospel. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.